Let's pray. Jesus, have your way. Speak to us according to your word. Holy Spirit, move among us. Convict us. Have your way. We just want you to speak to your church. And that we would be able to learn some things from your word, apply it to our lives, and be encouraged and sent out the power of your spirit to go do something about it. We need you, Jesus, and so we look to you. We ask that in your name. Amen. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we'll pass it around to you. We're going to need it because we're going to be Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 18. It says, so Paul still remained a good while. And you think, well, where on earth is Paul? Paul is in Corinth. If you recall from last week, a guy named Justice and Crispus gets saved, starts following Jesus. Paul was doing ministry in a synagogue. They booted him out, and he moves over to the next door. You guys remember this? He moves over next door. Literally, they shared the same wall, Crispus's house, or sorry, Justice's house, and the synagogue shared a wall. As time progresses, we see that Crispus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, he starts following Jesus. This was a big deal. A big win for Christianity, I suppose you could say. And by verse 17, we've got a guy named Sauce, who is now the ruler of the synagogue. Because Crispus started following Jesus, so they put Sosthenes in there. If you might recall, then we talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 1, Paul greets or has Sosthenes with him. And it seems as though this guy Sosthenes, who took a whooping in verse 17, the, the governor there, the ruling judge, didn't even notice. He let Sosthenes get beat pretty bad. He starts following Jesus, it looks like, as Paul ministered to him and loved him and cared for him, potentially. We're just thinking, what would it have looked like for Paul to be over here next door to the synagogue, and here comes Sosthenes after he'd been beaten? Would they have talked? Would Paul have said, man, I get you. I, I was, I've been there, Sosthenes. Ministering to him, eventually it seemed as though they became friends. They became brothers in Christ. So he's in Corinth, and you'll see Paul remained there a good while. Well, that's a very indefinite amount of time. We have a very specific amount in verse 11 of chapter 18. Look at it. It says, he continued there a year and six months. What was he doing? Well, he was teaching the Word of God. That's kind of what we do. Teaching the Word of God. He was there for a year and a half, and then he was there for a good while. So I don't know how long a good while is. It's a good while. So he spent, though, a, a decent amount of time in Corinth. Different than a lot of the other churches he was a part of. He spent a lot of time in Antioch. That was going to be the start and the reset of his missionary journeys. We'll see that actually happen today in verse 23. And then he spent a lot of time in Ephesus. And Corinth as well. Thankfully, though, for it, we have a lot of information on Corinth. He wrote two letters that we have written to us that we can glean a lot from them. Remember, Corinth was a crazy place. Athens was the intellectual thing. It was the cool classical area. Corinth was Las Vegas. It's where you went to go party and have some fun. Whatever happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth type of a deal, right? That's what Corinth was. What we're going to see here, okay, we'll get to it. So Paul stays there. And then you'll notice he took leave of the brethren and then sailed for Syria. So Bailey, throw that map up there so they can have something to look at. This is his, still his second missionary journey. And what I want to point out, the end, the end for Paul is Syria. That's all the way on the right-hand side. You'll see Syria. And then up to the left 
is Antioch. That's the church that sent Paul out. They, they laid hands on him, and they sent Paul and Barnabas out. That's the start and the stop of his missionary journeys. And so he sailed for Syria, but before he sailed for Syria, we're going to see he went a couple places in between. Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off in Centria, for he had taken a vow. In case you're wondering about Paul's hygiene, he did get haircuts. Why in the world would Luke add that to Scripture? Oh, by the way, Paul got a haircut. <laughs> well, that's pretty neat. Did he sh- anyway, so we're actually going to talk about it because it offers us a, it's just a really neat insight into the life of Paul and how kind of maybe Christians navigated that in this, during this day and age. He came to Ephesus, though, and he left them there. And I believe that Luke's referring to Aquila and Priscilla. He left in Ephesus. And while Paul was in Ephesus, though, he went into the synagogue like he always does, and he reasoned just like we've talked about week after week. What does it mean to reason with people, to mix thought with thought, to consider things? Have you thought about this? And then a person speaks to you, and you consider what they're saying. How do I respond, Lord, in a way that draws them to you or whatever it is? That's what reasoning is, just mixing thought with thought, considering things. He did that with the Jews, and they asked him to stay, and he said, I can't. I, I've got to leave. I have, must by all means keep the coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return to you, God willing. And then he sailed from Ephesus, and it looks as though he went to Caesarea, then to Jerusalem, and then he went back up to Antioch. We'll deal with it in a second. What is the deal, though, with Paul? I want to pause for a moment and look at this idea of a haircut and why should you get a haircut? Really, it's why you should get a vow. What is he doing? And is there a relevance or an importance to this in, th- in this day and age, in us following Christ now? Where, where is this thing of vow? And I want to talk about when can this be good and, and when can it be bad? What, when did Paul take the vow? We have no idea. And this is a V-O-W, not a vowel like A-E-I-O-U and sometimes Y. Like we're talking about him dedicating something very specifically to the Lord and, and it's his life. Why did he take this vow? No idea. There's lots of different thoughts because maybe he was in Corinth and things were really messed up in Corinth. And he's like, Lord, I got to set myself apart because this is a wild place. There are various things you would do as a person who took a vow It is thought, and you guys can research it and check it out, but it's thought it's very likely that this would have been uh, the idea of a Nazarite vow. You find this in Numbers chapter 6. You can write it down if you want to study it there. The verse, or the idea or concept of separation, it's the word depending on whether it's a verb or a noun, is nazir or nazir. And it just means to be separate, consecrated, and devoted. It's used 16 times in Numbers chapter 6 alone. You guys remember Samson was kind of a famous Nazarite. That was from birth. Nazarites didn't, it wasn't a lifetime thing usually. With Samson it was. He was dedicated as a Nazarite at the very beginning. And so he, you know, you guys know the story of Samson. John the Baptist, it's thought, was, was a Nazarite. He took that vow, dedicated himself to the Lord. Paul does it here. There's others within Scripture that do this as well. But it all has to do with being consecrated. Well, what in the world is that? Being devoted set apart very specifically for the Lord. That I'm going to put to rest my normal day-to-day activity or the way I, my normal rhythms of life, and I'm going to replace it with things about the Lord. And you can see where this goes into, this idea of a week of prayer and fasting. Why do you even do that? Why do you do that? Why not just always do it? Well, you die eventually. 
But uh, the week that we set apart, because we want the Lord to move, we want to have a special time where we say, God, we're seeking after you. When can it be good? When can it be bad? We can deal with it, but I want you to know this. When you see this idea of a vow, it is all about separation from the things of the world specifically. Why? Because God is worthy of it. And he's moving in your heart, and that's so important. I want you to be encouraged by that, that as you sit here and consider God's word this morning, and I think maybe you might be challenged to, like, God, are you calling me to something? And that we would listen to his voice and allow him space to speak to you as a church individually, but then also together collectively as we hang out October 1st through 5th and have a, a unique time where we just set it aside to pursue him. Be praying for that. Be asking God to minister to your hearts. What does that time look like for you? As an individual, what will that time look like? Let God lead you. Let him speak to you. If you have questions or thoughts, what should the time look like? Man, we can help. Fasting and all, like in the Bible, is oftentimes very specifically they wouldn't eat food. But nowadays, you can do all kinds of things. It's okay, I think specifically and contextually, it is food, and there's a very specific reason why you really need food. You don't need, you don't need YouTube videos at night. You do need food. <laughs> and so setting that aside means like, Lord, I'm here for you. In fact, I want you so bad, I'm not even going to eat because I want to replace that time with you, that you would be my food. We'll talk about the good, the bad, so bear with me for a second, but individually consider this, think, what is it the Lord is doing? But then also, husbands and fathers, what might this time look like for your, you and your family? Think about it. What do you want this to look like for you and your family? The October 1st through the 5th, if, as the Lord leads, just think about it. I want you to be prepared for it. Let it look different than normal. Let your kids see it. Uh, allow this to be something that inspires them to pursue Jesus in a, in a new or different way. Just exposing them to different ways of being devoted in an appropriate way. And so maybe you should take some notes and uh, walk through some of these things because I want it to be a healthy thing, obviously. Consider what this looks like. Okay, when is it healthy and good? Here's just a few unprofound thoughts. Healthy and holy taking a vow or like dedicating something to the Lord. You guys have maybe had that time where you're like, Lord, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to pray like all day today. And if I pray all day today, will you answer my prayer? You get in that where you wrestle and it's like, well, okay. Is it birthed out of a love for Jesus? Out of a love for the Lord? Let that be the thing that kind of starts all of this. Am I doing this because I love him? Because he's worthy? That's a good question to answer. Let the Lord search that out in your own heart. Do I love him? And am I doing this because he's worthy of it? Is this something that you're doing as an act of surrender, where you're, you're surrendering your will to him? We're going to talk through another verse as we move on here that is going to deal more specifically that, with that. But things to consider is this bird of that of love, is a bird of that of a surrender to pursue him and to know him? And then is it voluntary? Can you imagine, and I would, Bill would take me out in moments, if we said, hey, church, we're doing a week of prayer and fasting, and if you want to come to church here, you have to fast for a whole week. Can you imagine that? That would be called evil, just so you know. And if anyone ever does that, you stand up and you call them out. That's not good. 
right? It's not how it works. It ought to be voluntary. It's how the Lord works. Patient. He desires your heart, doesn't he? He wants your own, by your own volition, to do these things. As you look to him and respond to his beauty and his majesty and his grace that he's poured out in your own life, that as a response, you're like, Lord, here I am, I'm yours. You're so good. You just want to worship him. A way you can do that is by setting things aside. I'm yours, Lord. I just want you to, I just want to know you more. That it will be voluntary. It's so important that it's voluntary. Now, can you be encouraged? Of course, that's a healthy thing. I hope that you are being encouraged and just to, to consider what this might look like. But this idea of it being birthed out of love, a surrender and a yielding to the Lord Jesus, and it being something that's voluntary is vital to it. That is healthy. That's a good starting place for something like this. Why would Paul take a vow? Well, here, maybe here's a few reasons. What about when things are unhealthy and unholy? Okay, let's see if we can do this. It is unhealthy and un unholy when it becomes what I'll term as transactional. And that's that time where you say, all right, Lord, you're in a bind. <laughs> like, Lord, I'll promise you I'll never do X, Y, Z if you can just get me out of this pickle I'm in. And it becomes this transaction. Now, listen, can you pray about specific? Like, yes, of course. You got yourself in a bind because you're an idiot or something? Lord, help me. Oh, he's good and he's merciful. I'm not suggesting you couldn't pray, okay? Hear me out here, okay? But when your heart is to transact, where if I do this, then God, you'll do this. It doesn't work that way. I want to come to him open-handed and allow him to do what he wants to do. Can I offer myself? Here I am, God, I know and recognize that as I walk a certain way or if I sow into certain areas of my life that I will reap fruit? And the answer is, of course, absolutely. The Lord can respond in ways. Can you position yourself in him through the reading of his word and through prayer and times of meditation on his word? Well, he, can he, yeah, those are good ideas. He responds to that, certainly. But then it's like, well, why am I doing it? I want it to be birthed out of love, not a desire to get something. And that can be difficult to, to wrestle with. And so I don't want to complicate anything because I think a lot of times, you guys, it's mixed. I want my heart to be out of love and surrender and voluntary, but also like I have a need. And so I, I think that there's, it's okay to have a need and to say, Lord, I really need this. And I, I really recognize I want you more. And so Lord, here I am. But we don't want it to become merely transactional. To where I've done this, now God, you owe me this. It doesn't work that way. He's the king of kings. And so don't let it to become that. It also can be unhealthy when I believe that if I walk in a way that is maybe more devoted, that God will love me more. And that is just bad theology. It's, it's not understanding the finished work of the cross. That you are seen as God sees his son Jesus. That is the position that you now have because of what Christ has done on the cross. So effectual was the blood of Christ to cleanse you from your sins that God sees you just like he sees his son Jesus. In fact, Colossians goes as far as to say you're hidden inside of Christ. Christ, who is your life? He's going to appear. You'll appear with him. You're hidden in him. Well, how fun is that? And how incredible is that? That means that God cannot love you anymore or be more pleased with you than he already is. It's in his son, Jesus. Okay, let's go at this angle. Your unrighteousness 
Jesus took it upon himself on the cross. What did you get in exchange? His righteousness. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21. Maybe you don't believe me, man. Study the scriptures. It's a beautiful thing that the gospel has given us. What Christ has done in saying it is finished. And then having risen from the dead, he set us free. I no longer have to approach God on my own righteousness. I have another one, the perfect man, Jesus, who's come and done it. This is good news. So, so it comes bad theology when I think, oh God, I'll do this and now you love me more, right? You're more pleased with me and now you'll listen to me more. Guys, it's not like that. Don't walk that way. Here's why. Because sometimes the results of my yearning and my, and like my giving up to the Lord, like, hey, come on, haven't you seen me, God? Don't you love me more now? And, and then I equate the answer that he gives me with his love, and that's not going to work because there are times where he will or does not answer your prayer how you want it to be answered. And if I tie into that his love and he doesn't answer it how I want, then all of a sudden I have a twisted view of God. We have to be really careful. And that's why I'm even bringing this up. Just watch out and be careful. You pray and you can seek him and you can cry out to God and, and lay your heart out there and ask him things very specifically. In fact, during this time of, week of this week of prayer and fasting, and just so you know, you can do this always, okay? I, I'm referring to a specific instance that's coming up because it's really close, but you can always do this. You bring things before God, impossible prayers, people that you've been praying for years for their salvation, issues maybe you have in your own heart that you want to be set free from and you're just crying out to God. Maybe there's financial issues, marriage issues, whatever it might be. You bring them before the Lord and you say, God, I'm seeking after you hard for these things. Praise God for that. Do it. But be willing to sit and rest in his sovereignty, knowing that he's going to take care of you one way or the other. His ways are not our ways. I trust him. All of this, Paul cut his hair. <laughs> Paul cut his hair. Here's all these things. But the last thing is this. It's, if I do this to prove that I'm spiritual, and this gets into this really nasty area where like, it's like the Pharisees, where they tried to look a certain way so you would think something about them. They would distort their faces when they were fasting. They'd come in, they'd be like so tired. They'd be like, oh, I've just been fasting for like a couple weeks. And everybody's looking at them like, man, you guys are so holy and wow. And Jesus, is, he slams them for it, doesn't he? I mean, he lets them have it hard. How dare you trick people into thinking you're something that you're not. That's not how God works. God is not a God of insincerity. He's straight up. And he wants us to be like that as Christians. I'm not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes or act like I'm something that I'm not. In terms of taking a vow or walking in a certain way, I don't do it. I ought not do it so that you might think something about me trying to like add this uh, veneer of spirituality. Watch out, it's just evil. It's evil. It's not how the Lord would have it. I want it to be birthed out of love, a surrendered life, because I care, I just want you, Lord, you know? I don't know how else to express it other than it's a desire to know him more. Well, that's healthy. Voluntarily going after it because Jesus is worthy of your life. We'll get into that more later. But I want you to, I want to finish with this. Okay, sorry, it gets you all excited. I'm going to finish this particular section with this. <laughs> That's a cruel thing, isn't it? I'm so sorry. Oh, man. Okay, the Nazarite vow to, to finish it or even to go into it, it was costly. Now, these particular things, uh, like the Nazarite vow, and if you get into the, like, the really in the weeds, of it, was Paul doing this? Was there, like, was there sacrifices for atonement? And the answer is no. Paul's not going back to the law. 
He's walking in Jewish things. Well, why? He is Jewish, and there was, that's why I think vows, these things are like, okay, there's a place for them in our lives today where I want to dedicate something to the Lord. I'm going to take this day, Lord. I'm going to set it apart for you because you're worthy of it. That's a vow. It's like what Paul's doing right here. I'm trying to say like, it's appropriate today. We just want to walk through it well. But it is costly for you to do a Nazarite vow. You had to take a male lamb, a ewe, and a ram, and those would be sacrificed. You would offer them to the Lord. You would take a basket of bread. You would have cakes made of fine flour, all of these symbolic. You would have wafers. You would have grain, and then you would have a drink offering. Guys, that costs money, so to speak, then. And it is costly. There's, there, we don't want to enter into this lightly. He takes it seriously. You can go through numbers and look at vows later. Numbers chapter 6, again, deals with it all. So Paul cuts his hair off. Now we've talked about vows. Let's move on. What do you say? Then he came to Ephesus, like we've read, and he left them there, and he entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. They asked him to stay, and he didn't consent. Verse 21 says, he took leave of them, saying, I got to by all means keep the coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return to you, God willing, and he sailed then to Ephesus. When Paul then goes to Ephesus, interestingly enough, you could ask the question, why? Now, go, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, verse 6, and just so you can kind of see, I just want to point something out real quick. Acts chapter 16, in verse 6, says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now, you'll notice we have Asia up here. Asia Minor kind of is what they called it then. But, and then eventually, Ephesus is in Asia. Ephesus was one of the major cities in Asia. You could ask, why did God not allow Paul to go to Ephesus in Acts chapter 16? He's letting him go there now. So it is a place that Paul would go and visit at some point in time. So check it out. Just consider this in your own walks with the Lord. And um, maybe this is like how he speaks to you and how he navigates your life. You guys know this verse. It's going to be on the screen. But if you have your Bibles, turn to it just so you can put your eyeballs on it. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, 5 and 6. And again, it'll be on the screen. Man, if you could just look at it. It's such a powerful... I want to apply this to where we are now. Why did Paul have, sorry, why did God have Paul go to Ephesus now and not in Acts chapter 16? I believe that, that Paul would walk like this, and I'm thinking, Lord, help me walk like this. It says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And if you guys remember, what would Bill always say? Well, what does all mean? All, right? <laughs> what does all mean? It means all. And so now at this point in time, you might be thinking, whew, Lord, help me. I hear that. Lord, help me do that right there with all my heart. And he's asking us to lean not on our own understanding. So, okay, what does that mean? So I can't trust in, like, my own intellect, maybe, the way that I have always done things. I need to put my trust in and lean on him. Okay, in all of my ways, oh, man, there it is again. What's all mean? All. So not just a few of your ways, not just most of your ways, but, oh, man, all. Okay, God, help me walk this out in my life. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. That word acknowledge is the, Greek, is the Hebrew, sorry, yada. It means to know him. In all of your ways, know him. Isn't that so cool? What does God want of you? He wants you to know him. He doesn't want your behavior. That's going to come. A, a changed life will come when you know him. He wants to work from the inside and then outward. Allow him. 
That's when I yield and surrender. That's the whole point of yielding and surrendering. God, do your work in me, and it'll come out. The Pharisees wanted the outside to look good. The inside was nasty. The Lord is way more concerned with the inside. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. Okay, Lord, here you are. I just acknowledge you. I want to know you. And notice what it says. He shall direct your paths. All right, throw that map back up there, Bailey, if you don't mind. He will direct your paths. So that red line, just so you know, that is the Lord directing Paul's path. You guys tracking with me? That is Paul leaning not on his own understanding. Here I am in Asia, God. Why wouldn't I go to Ephesus? It's like the biggest city in all of Asia. Well, Paul, don't lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, know me. Just let, like, sit before me and let me talk to you. If Paul hadn't done that, let me just encourage you with this. He wouldn't have gone to Troas. Now, who did he meet in Troas? You guys remember it was Luke. He met Luke in Troas. If, we, if Paul hadn't have met Luke... We wouldn't be having a Bible study right now. We'd be somewhere else. We might be in Romans or something, you know? We wouldn't have the gospel of Luke. Paul wouldn't have gone into modern-day Europe and gone through Corinth. We wouldn't have the book of Corinthians, perhaps. You know what I'm saying? Like, God saw it all. He knew it all. God led him this direction. But all of a sudden now, in God's will, he says, hey, go to Ephesus. And so he ends up going to Ephesus. This idea of God willing is a declaration of a person who is gripped by the Lord. That I don't make my own decisions. Okay, God, this is where you think, God, help me, right? Lord, help me. I don't make my own decisions. He's the one who does it. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Get ready for this. It's so good. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, who is from God? He gave you as a gift. And you are not your own. Pause for a moment and allow that to sink in. Consider this. I remember the very first time I was confronted with this. I was, golly, probably 15, 16 years old. I was not born again. I had a good friend of mine, Chris Cox. Uh, he had an email that was, I am not my own at like AOL or whatever it was back then. AOL.com. I am not my own. And I remember thinking, what a dumb email. Why on earth would you say, I am not my own? What an idiot. <laughs> Little did I know, oh boy, like 20 years later, I'd be talking about it in a message, you know? What a wise dude. I am not my own. Oh, man, let it sink in for just a second. Let it simmer <laughs> on your hearts. What does it mean, I am not my own? It means that you are not your own. <laughs> Isn't that great? Make sure you write that one down. I had to go into a lot of commentaries for that one. Well, why not, though? Well, you were bought at a price. We're going to celebrate that with communion here at the end, remembering what Jesus did in order to buy us back from our own rebellion. You were bought at a price. Your life isn't your own. Man, I don't know if this is the first time you're coming face to face. Perhaps it is. Probably not. But you're coming face to face with this unbelievable truth of Christianity that you are not your own. That the life that you live is, isn't yours to live. It's his. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God. So because of all of that, glorify God in your body and in your spirit because they're God's anyways. Do you notice this, though? You're being asked to do it. It isn't a robotic thing. It is a work of your volition. That God would have you do this of your own free will that you would offer yourself. That's the beauty of worship. 
That's why it's meaningful to him. You were bought at a price. Consider what this means. Let it be heavy in an appropriate sense that your life is not your own, that your chief end in life is to bring glory to him. Why? Because he's worthy of it. That is why you exist right now, that your life would glorify him. He's enabled it by saving you and giving you his spirit. You are no longer a slave to sin. You get to walk in the newness of life that we find in Christ. And we're going to celebrate again with communion. You guys know these things. You are a well-taught body of Christ for the last 34, 35 years. But let it sink in. You're not your own. When you walk out of this building, you might walk a little different. Let it sink in. Lord, have your way with that verse. Oh, it's so hard, isn't it? So just so you know, it's okay. This might be a moment in time where you experience conviction. Praise God. That should drive you to the Lord. We sang it. There's no condemnation. We sang it already. We're not talking condemnation. You might look at this verse and think, man, I live my life 100% for me. What am I doing? Oh, praise God for recognizing it. Repent and follow him. Say, God, I want this. Let your heart be known. Praise the Lord. Or you could be like, God, make me willing to be willing to be willing to be. So on, so on. How about wherever you are, that I would want this. Your life is the Lord's. Allow him to move and use you. That gets us to verse 23. Maybe 22. I don't know if we read that. And when he had landed in Caesarea, he had gone up and greeted the church. I believe that he had gone to Jerusalem, just so you know. This is Paul's second missionary journey still. Oh, you're awesome. Way to go. And then he went down to Antioch. And just in case you're wondering, why on earth would Luke say he went down to Antioch? The Bible's not inerrant. Look how bad it is. They didn't have maps like this, okay? Antioch in Syria is down in elevation. Jerusalem is up high on the hills there. And so, like, they, he literally went down to, to Syria, just so you know, to Antioch. He went down to Antioch there, and now we see the beginning of his third missionary journey. Antioch marks those, the transitions each time. First missionary journey, he went from Antioch and came back to Antioch. Well, now he starts his second one. He goes and kind of circles around, and here we are back again. We are now starting the third missionary journey of Paul here in Acts chapter 18, verse 23, and he had spent some time there in Antioch. He departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, and notice what he was doing. He's strengthening the churches. What does it mean to strengthen a person? Let's say you were thinking, how can I strengthen the church? Strength, I'll define it like this, the ability to endure the application of force without, without bending or yielding. Uh, I was watching Purdue football last night. It was a bummer. But we were watching it, and you're watching these big dudes crash their skulls together on the line. Those guys are strong. They're able to endure the application of force without bending or yielding. That's the idea, at least, right? That I can protect the quarterback or whatever it might be. And so they're sitting there. They're strong. A little bit different than power. Speed and power, or speed and strength equals power. What is Paul doing? He's strengthening the churches. So consider this, (laughs) bear with me, but it means he's making them stronger. He's somehow, through the teaching of his word, through the ministry of Paul and the others that are there, enabling to, to strengthen the church so the church can endure and go through things without bending or yielding or breaking. 
He's strengthening them. It's a work that we get to do today. I really hope, we pray, that you guys are strengthened every Sunday when you come together, that you leave stronger. How do I strengthen a person? It's, I don't think it's any different than like what we would consider for strength and conditioning. I teach a class here at the school where we go in and we do strength training and you watch a person and before they start doing any kind of barbell work, we'll have them kind of all, we'll on-ramp them to make sure they're doing good as far as form is concerned. And so we'll have them squat and I'll watch them squat. And sometimes they'll kind of be, they'll go to one side, they'll be a little bit off. And so then I got to correct their form or they can't go, they're not very mobile or anything. Their ankles are really tight because they sit all day long or whatever the situation is. There's ways of remedying all of, the, all of that. Whether you do like one-legged things, unilateral to strengthen a weak side, et cetera, et cetera. The whole point of this is this. When you look at a person, when Paul's strengthening the church, you're observing them and you're trying to understand where their weaknesses are. And where their strengths are, and then we get to, as believers, we get to like help them grow in a certain area. In order to do that, guess what you need? You need to know a person, don't you? You need to have you need to understand like where a person is and what they're struggling with. Well, how do I know that? Well, you involve yourself with them, you begin to hang out with them. We're gonna see it in a second with Aquila and Priscilla, and so I'll save a lot of that for them. But you hang out with them. That's how you strengthen them. Each one of you are called to it. I really believe that's part of discipleship, strengthening one another in Christ, reminding people of the truths of the gospel. Various ways you can do that. If I could encourage you or strengthen you even now, these things get plugged in. Let people know you. It can be hard to be vulnerable like that, but the end of it is so beautiful, especially when you're with a group of people who genuinely love you and genuinely want to see you grow in Christ and be used by him and for his kingdom. Okay, this next part will go quickly, okay? Look at verse 24. All right, now a certain Jew named Apollos, that's very odd, by the way. Apollos was a Greek god, and here's a Jew named Apollos. He was born in Alexandria. Notice some things about him. He was, he was an eloquent man, mighty into scriptures. Well, he came to Ephesus. Guess who was left in Ephesus? Aquila and Priscilla. Remember Paul left them there. And aren't you glad that he did? Again, just being led by the Lord, Aquila and Priscilla perhaps just thinking, you know what, we should probably stick around here. I feel like the Lord has something for us here. Whatever it might have been, you know. Paul agreeing to it, left them there. Apollos, Alexandria. Real fast on Alexandria. It's a cool city. It was probably the second most important city at this point in time next to Rome. Throw that picture of the lighthouse up there. There was this thing called the Lighthouse of Alexandria. No longer stands. It was around for 1,600 years, built somewhere around 300 or 200 BC. Next to the the Giza pyramids, this was the second tallest building ever made by like ancient people. So I don't know how they qualify that. It's just what I read, okay? Second tallest, this was 330 feet tall, thereabouts. It's about the the height, if you're going downtown and you look at the JW Marriott, the new one, you know, the really pretty glass one there by the Indian Stadium, that's how tall this lighthouse was. And so you can imagine for back then, this was a big deal, this lighthouse. Everybody knew about it. It was considered then one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, like a must-see for the Hellenists. Alexandria had a library that isn't around anymore, but it had a library that had 500,000 books in it, and, which was an enormous amount. It was considered the intellectual capital of the world for a pretty long, a long time. And even for Christianity, it, it was a hub for a lot of uh, thinkers and a lot of philosophy that came out of, of even Christianity. 
Apollos was born and raised in this place, and you'll notice he was an eloquent man. Well, what does it mean to be eloquent? Learned. He was a man of letters, skilled in literature and arts, versed in history and the antiquities, skilled in speech. He was eloquent, meaning he probably had the equivalent of like letters next to his name. Apollos with a bunch of letters, right, next to his name. He just, he had been in school, he had been taught, and he was mighty in the scriptures. He could take Old Testament scripture and he could use it really well to encourage or to, here we're going to see to refute the Jews because Jesus is the Christ. He just had a lot of abilities, super gifted, super talented, but you'll notice here there was something about him that was incomplete that still needed to be formed and molded. And there's, there's a neat picture within this. He had received and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. I believe that's the Lord Jesus, but he'd only known the baptism of John. It's an interesting wording. We're going to deal more with that in uh, Acts chapter 19. What exactly is the baptism of John? It's different than what we would know as Christian baptism. Likely it was this idea of mikvah, where the Jews would then bathe themselves in a ritual way of cleansing just to demonstrate, here we are, Lord, or God, I'm, I'm here to be cleansed and so on. We'll deal with that later. He only knew the baptism of John, but it seems as though he was saved. There's like debate. You look at this. Was Apollo saved? He only knew the baptism of John. Well, baptism is not what saved you. He could have been born again, but just hadn't been baptized like what they were doing now. And so then Aquila and Priscilla come along, and they're trying to help him understand Jesus more. Keep this in mind, that Apollos taught accurately the way of the Lord. But then Aquila and Priscilla come along, and they teach him more accurately. Meaning this, that he had so much knowledge of who Jesus was None of it was wrong. He wasn't teaching wrong things. He was just teaching incomplete things. And so they came alongside of him. This is discipleship, you guys. This is what we want to see happen in our day and age now with this church fellowship, continuing to see discipleship go on. We're just seeing a picture of it being laid out here right before us. This is what it looks like for those of you sitting here today. This is what God has called you to do, to make disciples. How do we do that? Okay, very fast. What were we working with Apollos? A man who had fervor or boldness, not merely skill, although he had skill, but he had a conviction based on something that was deeply embedded in his heart. You kind of have this intangible, you see it in people, where it's like, this guy's got something, this lady's got something, I want to pour into them. They're just going to soak up anything I give them. And so you want those people, right? Those people who are just going to soak it up, who are fired up for Jesus. Like, we want that right there. It's a person of peace. Okay, so then... Some things we can observe. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Aquila and Priscilla heard him. Okay, first thing. Why were Aquila and Priscilla in a synagogue? They're Christians. Well, they're also Jews. And do you remember how Paul would go into synagogues? And you know what we read about how Jesus would go into synagogues? And we just see this being passed down. They're intentionally positioning themselves to have conversation with people. To connect with people. You guys, I know that. We've done this for week after week after week, talking about gospel rhythms and putting ourselves in places where we can have these conversations with people and really invest and share the gospel truth with others. That's what they're doing, just so you see it. That's what, exactly what they're doing. Aquila and Priscilla heard him. They couldn't have heard him had they not been in the synagogue. They're just faithful to be in this gospel rhythm. Going to synagogues. They heard him. They're listening. Notice they took him aside well, what does that mean? That's kind of the, uh, point number two. They patiently waited until they had an opportunity to invest in him. And they took him aside to help him, meaning this, they didn't call him out publicly. They didn't stop the meeting and say, hey, there's more to it. Now, they could have, and that might not have been wrong, but they just patiently waited and allowed the Lord to, to minister. They're sitting there praying, Lord, what do we do? How can we help this guy out? You know, so on and so forth. 
they waited patiently and they took him aside. You know what that is? It's like the picture of the Holy Spirit who comes alongside of us. This is what we see happening right now. This is what we're called to do. Taking people aside and then helping them understand. Well, what did they do? They took him aside. The third thing they did was they explained something. They set it out. They exhibited what it was. The word is this. Uh, during a science fair, you know how you help your kids, you know, do the whole board, poster board, and they've got their display out there? That's the word that we're seeing that uh, Aquila and Priscilla are doing for Apollos. They're taking the gospel truth, the fullness of it, and they're laying it out there for Apollos to see. Check out this aspect. You were talking about this part of Jesus as being the Messiah, and you're absolutely right, but guess what? There's more. He's given us his spirit, or there's this idea of grace. Whatever it might have been, we don't know what that means or what they explained, but we're just thinking, what could it have been? They're just making it clear. Whatever he was lacking, they made it clear. How do you know what a person's lacking? You hang out with them. You do life with them. You invest in them. You do things with them. It's discipleship. You have to do life with people. We have to know people. They explained to him more accurately the way of the Lord, uh, offering complete up-to-date understanding as far as who he was. And then what happens, notice this, and this is, I think, another, an important aspect of discipleship, is they encouraged to send him out. Meaning this, that Aquila and Priscilla were not, what would you say? They were not intimidated by his giftings, right? They weren't afraid to see someone else do really well or even maybe better than them. That they were so content with seeing the gospel go forth that they're like, dude, we're gonna launch this guy on. Go for it. Notice what it says. And when he, that's Apollos, desired to cross to Achai, whatever, that's over where Corinth is. Uh, Apollos had a massive ministry in Corinth. The brethren wrote, and so the church is like, hey, yes, exhorting the disciples, receive Apollos. He's awesome. He's going to get after it. Set him loose, you know. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace. Notice what he did. He vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from scriptures that Jesus is the Christ fascinating sentence. Like the words that are being used there are really intense. We might talk a little bit about it next week as we get into 19 and what Paulus did. Like he went after him pretty hard. Like he was, he went after him really hard. <laughs> We've talked about Paul being provoked in his spirit when he was at Athens. You might remember that. And then we talked about him being compelled by the spirit when he was in Ephesus, sorry, Corinth. And here we see this just move of the spirit here in, in Ephesus, and Paul's going to do this again. Anyway, all that being said, we've talked about how God has called us to make disciples. You guys know these things. Now we saw a picture of it with Aquila and Priscilla, husband and wife, getting after it hard for the kingdom, pulling people aside. What are they doing? They're not ridiculing him. They're like, how did you say it? None of that. They're just lovingly coming alongside of somebody and helping them understand more. Let's do that. We talked about this idea of consecration and being devoted. Let the Lord minister to you as far as what that means. We're going to take communion, and we're going to set this time aside. You guys go ahead and come up, because we're a little bit behind. But let me encourage you. So we're going to, we're going to have a time of, of uh, worship as we pass out the elements. Um, if you haven't been here before, hold on to them. We'll take them together. Man, hang out with the Lord. Um, allow him to minister and speak to you. Like you have a time now where you can allow him to speak and be led by his spirit. If there's things you need to deal with in your life, then deal with it. Um, confess. You and the Lord Jesus, you need no other mediator but him. Confess. 
offer him thanks for what he has done. And uh, man, if there's a place in your life for just devotion, right, where your heart would do it out of love and, and care and, and a way to honor and glorify him, say it, articulate it to him. Speak to him. Just the time is now. It's, and it, we're setting it aside for that right there, that you could spend some time hanging out with the Lord. Hold on to those, and, and then uh, we'll do communion, and then we'll close with a song, okay? But Lord, guide us now as we consider you. <laughs> we put our minds right back on the cross. Beautiful work that you have done. Set us free. Now guide us and minister to us as your church. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.